Hi, everyone, and thank you for joining us on another episode of Expert Answers from Inside Scientific. Inside Scientific is the online environment for life science webinars, virtual events, interviews, and educational content that helps you do your best work. Today, we are joined by Emma Carey and John Woolard. Emma is a PhD candidate at Dr. Chow Yen Chin's laboratory in the Department of Pharmacology at UC Davis. John is the Principal Research Technologist at the Lilac Lerman Research Laboratory at the Mayo Clinic. They're here to speak about the value and utility of heart rate variability as a preclinical tool for studying both cardiovascular and non-cardiovascular related disease in animal models. Let's jump in. question. Many physiological measures are uh, influenced by circadian rhythm. Uh, can you speak to any diurnal effects on HRV in your models? And Emma, maybe you could start. Uh, yeah, so we do see uh, a huge swing in our heart rate variability parameters between light cycles. We often see an increase in heart rate variability in the daytime, which for rodents is when they're resting because they're nocturnal. So it's a little counterintuitive, but that actually makes a ton of sense because that would be sort of the vagal mediated part of their day. So you would expect to see sort of a greater influence of that, I would believe. And then we see sort of a consistent drop in it. Again, when we do 36 or 48 hours of recordings, we will see the sort of consistent swing up and down. But the data I presented today was just from the dark cycle, but we do see an effect for sure. Okay, perfect. Yeah. John, yeah, you? So we've looked at briefly, have looked at the diurnal cycle of our animals, and there seems to be a lot less influence in the diurnal cycle on our particular animals. And it could simply be due to a couple of things. One, it could be the way our animals are handled and, 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 and housed. But it also could be partially due to the fact that it's well known that uh, animals specifically ossobiles, when they are fed and get large and have um, metabolic syndrome induced uh, from our high-fat diet, they tend to have a lot less activity and are a lot less active. So we could be seeing a masking of some of that effect uh, due to those animals. Now, we do, our control animals, we didn't see a lot of difference, and it could simply be that we do have some smaller numbers. We only have four animals in our normal diet control group. We're hoping to add a few more animals to that group so that we can look at those particular differences later on. Okay, very good. Next question. So uh, you both presented HRV data, one derived from ECG traces, the other blood pressure recordings. Santiago has asked how comparable are results obtained from ECG, you know, versus blood pressure data. So could perhaps we have a discussion about, you know, your experience, ECG versus blood pressure, and maybe the experimental advantages or drawbacks of of using these measurements to interpret changes in autonomic function. Again, Emma, maybe you could lead us off. Sure. You know, traditionally, the reason that ECGs are, I think, preferred is because when you're trying to sort of mark in your waveforms, uh, you get the sharpest peak with your R wave compared to something like a systolic peak of your blood pressure form. Mm -hmm. Of course, you absolutely can mathematically derive these from either. I think it becomes sort of a, a concern of how precisely you're sort of capturing the same component of the heart's activity, which when you have the heart reflection in ECG is a little more clear than you have in sort of a indirect measurement of the heart function, which you would get in blood pressure. But so I, I understand people use blood pressure and it is published because people want to obtain as much 
useful data from their you know recordings as possible. Sort of physiological purists would say if you can, you should derive them from ECGs or at least corroborate you know them with ECGs with your blood pressure to sort of know how consistent they are. But absolutely, you can you can mathematically derive them from blood pressure. Okay, John, any uh, additions there? I would agree. I'm I'm going to agree with Emma completely on that. I think I. Uh, you can do that. It is best to have ECG. We're trying to utilize, and she is also correct in that we are trying to utilize as much of our data as we can. And uh, we wanted to at least attempt the analysis. But what I would also say is that seeing the agreement between the two types of analysis also suggests that you know, that our data is actually reasonably reflective of what's going on. It's not the best. I agree. Okay. Very good. Emma, did your lab test any other beat-to-beat percent change values other than the 20% you discussed? Sure. So we we started with a 50% because we had when we were doing some initial arrhythmia detection analysis, we when we assign missed beats, we look for 100% of a change between two beats as a reflection of an entire missed beat or a dropped beat. And then we use a 50% cutoff as sort of a one and a half missed beat, so the hardest sort of functioning abnormally. And so we started from there and just went down. We did 50, we did 40, 30, 35. We were playing around. We looked at a bunch of histograms to look at the distribution of our of our data across multiple animals to try and say, like, how close are we getting? And so we, we started at where I think we agreed on 35 for a while and we felt pretty good about that. And then as our hand cleaned data came in, and again, the problem is, you know, comparing an hour, if you have a relatively clean hour of data that you're comparing to 35, you may find that that's completely acceptable. But as you sort of get a broader range of fidelity of data coming in cleaned up, you have to make changes. And we found that really 20% eliminated, and it's a, it's a, do you want to eliminate all of the bad data and a little bit of the good, or do you want to keep a little bit of the bad data and mostly and, and not eliminate any good? And so that's sort of the, the line you have to figure out. And we we decided that 20 may be, you know, it may be 21 is perfect. It might be 18 is perfect. I mean, there's no way that we can truly know that. Um, but we, we found that enough consistency across a couple of animals and both in mice and rats, we found that consistency where we felt confident that we were eliminating enough bad data that we were getting to a true, real physiological value. Okay. Very good. Somewhat as an extension of this, Chris has asked, have you tested how your 20% cutoff affects sensitivity to detect slight increases in vagal tone? So I think it is talking to that, you know, does it reduce your ability to see small changes? I would say we actually get better resolution. We were using that two standard deviation cutoff and we could see some modest changes in vagal tone. And I think this has actually cleaned up our data so that we have a very small effect size in our mouse model as is. I'm, I'm talking maybe one to three milliseconds. You know, any sort of artifact or noise is going to potentially interfere with that enough that you know, our, with our statistics, we're not going to get be able to detect anything. So we actually found better resolution with this 20% cutoff in the same data set compared to the two standard deviations. So we actually feel really confident that we are we are capturing changes in vagal tone appropriately. Very good. Okay. John, what software program did you use to obtain the low frequency and high frequency domains? We just used the um, embedded analysis within Panema we were able to identify and utilize that software directly. Okay. 
maybe Terrence and and Jennifer, could you comment on this extension? How is there any improvement of workflow that Data Insights provides for that type of analysis? Hi, so this is Jennifer Doyle, and I guess to your question, so as Emma Carey had provided in her presentation, Data Insights allows the user to remove the artifacts that can show up in an ECG signal, uh, arrhythmias that are not driven by the SA node, and which takes away from your true HRV findings. So Data Insights allows you to use that as a tool to remove anything that should be removed without having to hand score or hand clean up the data. Okay, so then would data be moving back into Ponema or are data sets moving oh, back between these two yeah. things for analysis? I, so that's a yeah, great question to Andy. That's, I forgot to mention that. So Data Insights is a program that's within Panema. So you interact with Data Insights along with your, your data stream of the ECG signal. So you can live look at the findings and then go back to the series of beats that um, were involved in your findings. Perfect. Okay. It's all, it's all interactive in Panema. Okay, perfect. Is it always the case that continuous recording should be analyzed for HRV, or can parse data sets be used to draw the same scientific conclusions? I mean, we've John, you mentioned five-minute intervals analysis in your pigs. Can you explain this process again and why your lab analyzed the data this way? And maybe following Emma, can you comment on parsing data samples in a, in a rodent model? So we yeah we did do continuous uh, continuous acquisition over the entire uh, six months those animals were on uh, study. We we broke it up into the five minute interval similar to the reason why uh, Emma did for the at short term analysis to calculate the uh, those values for the time domain. But we did do do use the, the continuous uh, the entire seventy two hours parsed out that way. Okay. Um, it also made it a little bit easier to handle the data, I think. We now we do do and have utilized non-continuous data acquisition, we are, which we are actually currently act, uh, looking at in a several other groups of animals. Okay. Okay. Like I said, you get different information when you do parsed segments. And so I know that it is more common, I think, to do parse segments in frequency domain, at least as far as where I've seen it done. Mm -hmm. And the reason for this is, again, you can sort of find a clean section of data within an hour. For example, you can find 30 seconds or a minute and say, okay, I'm going to use this as my reflective of the whole hour, and then I'll just go on and, and from there. And I think that the danger in that potentially is that you are cherry picking. Is it clean because the animal is just not moving? And, you know, especially in rodents, you have this challenge where like you have the lead configuration and as they bend and groom and eat and move around, they're constantly adjusting their leads, which is why you have really noisy signals often. It's a little less of a problem in rats, but mice, it's a, a huge problem. And so are you picking a segment where they're resting? And so you have maybe a greater vagal influence in that one minute. And then maybe if you had looked at the next minute over, even that's a little bit messier, that would reflect something totally different. And so I think that as a scientist, I am hesitant to say, don't look at all the data, because I think that all of the data informs you in ways that cherry picking certain sections will you'll miss something mm -hmm. and you'll make totally different conclusions from that because you just don't have all of the information and i think if you have the ability you, you generally i've seen heart variability 
you know, in humans, again, you can do shorter time segments because you are controlling their respiration. They are seated and stationary. But for rodents, I, I really think the more data you have, the more of a picture of sort of the autonomic regulation you're able to get. And so I think it, it, it you're, you're hurting your own uh, sort of conclusions by, by not including as much data as you have. Makes sense. Okay, Dr. Bob Hamlin is is sending in lots of questions. Thanks for being with us, Dr. Hamlin. Emma, how did you produce the arrhythmias arrhythmias in the data that you presented today? Okay, so I actually wasn't a part of that study. That was in collaboration with a a lab we work with on campus. And I'm not entirely familiar with that pacing protocol. That data is published, and I'm happy to, to find that citation in that paper and send that PDF over to him. But I... That was prior to me getting here, so I actually have never performed that procedure myself. We hope you enjoyed this episode of Expert Answers and that you will tune into future episodes where researchers just like you answer questions about their work and share science. For the full webinar, please see the link in the description. Don't forget to subscribe, and we'll see you next time.